This week on the It's a Monkey podcast. They'll weave this long story that says, my product is going to be the hero in your life. This product is the Luke Skywalker in your world. It's the new hope that is so fundamentally wrong on a psychological level, on an evolutionary level, on a socioeconomic level. The product is not, and the service is not the hero of the story. The hero of the story is the customer. It's the client. Your app or your accounting service or your dog walking service or your tennis shoe company, that's the elixir. That's the thing that's supposed to to help you be the hero. Good morning, good evening, hello, wherever you are in the world. My name is Kevin Garber. I am coming to you live from Sydney, Australia on this beautiful, beautiful autumn day, or as some of you call it, fall. Uh, we've had an unusually hot autumn um, this year, which uh, is a little bit worrisome in one way, but it's actually quite beautiful to enjoy in another way. You're listening to episode 117 of the It's a Monkey podcast. We chat uh, every week about a couple of uh, tech stories. We also try to find thought leaders in the space and uh, you know, learn about what's going on and find some interesting people with interesting stories. And as always, I have my co-host with me, Kate Frappel, who's in Whistler, Canada, lucky her. She is the design lead of uh, Manage Flitter. Although, have we, I think we discussed this last podcast case. Do we have a new title for you? Because your title really doesn't <laughs> capture what you do, right? No, I think we've said this maybe the last three podcasts, but I, I still haven't figured out a new title yet. It's not on the top of my to do list. Yeah, okay. Well, you know, if you're listening and you're part of a, a startup, you probably know that um, a title is usually only 10% of what you do and you'll end up getting dragged into all sorts of other bits and pieces. My title as CEO, um, I think, and it, and it was uh, Phil Libin from the founder and CEO of Evernote to actually commented on this as a CEO, you're the sponge for all the stress, right? So the staff and the team can actually do the actual work. And that's probably what I feel the most is my main task is to be the sponge for all the chaos so that you guys can actually go on and do the work. Now, that's probably my main job and is CEO and stress sponge. <laughs> I like that one. Maybe we should add that to the new website. Um, it's true, though. So every time I'm feeling stressed, and uh, I, I always I always say to Jimmy, who's one of my right-hand people in the team, and, and I say, well, you know, at least it's me feeling this and not the team because they have to get on and do all sorts of work. Anyway, this is episode 117. It is April the 11th, uh, 2018. Uh, we're recording this podcast on April the 11th, and you might... Uh, hear this a few days later. As always, you can email us at podcastedit2monkey.com. We're getting some nice suggestions and pitches for people to interview, so keep that coming. That's great. We'll keep these podcasts going. We enjoy them. We hope that you enjoy them. All we ask is that you share them, you keep on listening, uh, you even put a review on iTunes. That'll be great. If you didn't listen to the previous episode podcast, it was a great one. Uh, I spoke with Vanessa Lim, who's the founder of Restyle Closet. And uh, she's a smart, bold, high-energy entrepreneur based in Sydney. And she's, she's got a, a fashion tech. Well, it's not really a fashion tech, but it's a, a fashion industry type startup to, um, based around reselling high-end female clothes. And I, I find these secondary markets quite fascinating. So um, you can go to itsamonkey.com and you can listen to that episode with Vanessa Lim where I chatted to her for quite a while. And there was an in-studio chat, which we always like. 
Coming up on today's show, as always, we have a great interview. Uh, I chat with Nate Wright, who's the owner of Small Biz Triage, and uh, even chatted to him about some non-technical aspects, including the fact that he went to military college, which I find I find that quite fascinating, that the whole sort of military complex of these uh, countries that have big militaries, uh, machineries. Um, we don't uh, we don't get to to hear about that much firsthand. So I spoke with him about some of the tech side of things and his email marketing agency and experience as well as uh, his experience at a military college. So that's coming up later on in the show. But as usual, we kick off the podcast with some tech news. And I have had some feedback from people that listen to the podcast that they actually really like the tech news because uh, we always surface some interesting innovations and stories. Um, Because I did at one stage debate whether we should get rid of the tech news because a lot of the podcasts just go straight into interviews. But I have had feedback that uh, the tech news is an appreciated segment. So we will keep that going. Kate, um, one of the themes we've had going on the podcast is um, the quantifiable self, as well as wearables, as well as uh, medical technology. And boy, this seems like an interesting one. Scientists develop tiny tooth-mounted sensors that can track what you eat. Yes. I love this. Yeah, yeah, I think this has a lot of potential. So these are miniaturized sensors, and they're, I guess, flexible somewhat. They can be mounted on your tooth. And they communicate wirelessly with your mobile device, uh, transmitting information on your glucose, salt, and alcohol intake. Is this is this live and in production, or is this sort of like maybe a crowdsource, or it's still it's still in progress? No, no. Sci- scientists have started this um, at a university in London, but there are like there's so many more possibilities. So the sensor could, in future, detect nutrients, chemicals, and other sort of, I guess, bodily states. Uh, but at the moment, it's just concentrating on glucose, salt, and alcohol. But you can't actually purchase. You can't purchase that that your local hardware retailer. You can't purchase one of these wearables and clip it onto your tooth and away you go yet, right? <laughs> I don't believe so, no. It's just they've just sort of made it in the labs, I guess. It's going to be, yeah, it's going to be really interesting. I mean, nutrition has become a massive, massive thing around the world, particularly in developed countries that have the privilege of, of really – Picking and choosing and fighting the battle of um, a lot of junk food, etc., and to to be able to get objective feedback and and gaps in your diet. I mean, humans are remarkably bad at remembering what they do and how much they do, and uh, you know, over drinking and overeating and under eating healthy foods and not drinking enough or water, etc. So, getting you know, I'm a big believer in the quantified self. I've just bought myself a new Garmin tracker to. To, to tap into my heart rate, my steps, my sleep. And it's quite interesting. You know, it's quite interesting to surface these aspects. So that sounds really interesting. Although it's, it, it would have to be really subtle. It would have to be a really understated wearable. I mean, you don't want to be, you don't want to be walking around with some, <laughs> some clump of rubber around your tooth or something. No, definitely. Well, these are actually uh, two mil by two mil. Um, uh-huh. And they're just wow. like a gold ring. Yeah, they look like a gold ring. There's three layers, so two outer layers, one on each side, and then inside it's a centro-bioresponsive layer, and that absorbs the nutrients, and they use like a radio frequency spectrum to eradicate elements. So when the radio frequency bounces back, the intensity is different, and that's how it can monitor what it's triggered. It's fascinating. That's re- I-, I didn't even think they'd, uh, they'd ever have a tooth wearable. Mm. No, it's good. If they, I mean, if they just made it a different color, 
I think it would be great. I mean, in the picture that's on the article, they've got it on like the front tooth, uh-huh. uh, which I think could be a bit weird having just a random gold square there. But if you could put it on one of your back teeth, it'd be no different to having a crown. Yeah, yeah, and the benefits could be could be really big, particularly for people with you know chronic conditions like diabetes, where they can track you know nutrients, etc., and what they're not supposed to do, or people with uh, high blood pressure, etc. I mean, the quantified self still it's still marginal, like, like no one's really, I mean, people are tracking steps and exercise, but it's, there's still no killer app that we can't do without like Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or mobile phones or email or it's still very much a a bit of a night, you know, nice to have. And it's interesting, but you won't miss it if it's not there. Right. Yeah, definitely. I, I I wouldn't be surprised if, um, if there's some kind of development that's already been out there, um, which goes into your bloodstream or it's the likes of a chip or something like that. It's just not widely accepted at this stage. Well, medicine is still so reactionary and picks up issues at such an advanced stage. I think the next stage of medicine is some serious preventative technology that picks up things at a very, very, very early stage. And that's really the next the next stage of course our whole medical industry is not really set up for that and it's, it's you know they they make a lot of money um, on chronic illnesses and, and late stage issues i believe uh, in most western countries about 80 percent of your health care or 90 percent is spent in the last couple of years of your life when you become really unwell so yeah i can believe that it's a big uh, big challenge well let's uh let's look out for that maybe this time next year we'll be, both be chatting with with wearables and we can share that and you can see how much junk food your team members. We've got a couple of developers in our team which, which, which have drawers full of sugar and sweets, right? <laughs> whatever, whatever makes them keep going. Yeah, look, just keep on coding, you know. So some of them it's caffeine, for some of them it's sugar, and for, for some of them it's, it's all sorts of other things. They're definitely, definitely uh, interesting, interesting smart sorts uh, developers. So, yeah, we'll keep an eye out for that. Um, Facebook, of course, has been in the press for all the wrong reasons. And I see actually Mark Zuckerberg fronted the U.S. The US Senate, uh, I think, today and, and answering. I haven't had a chance. That was overnight Sydney time, so I haven't had a chance to actually read what happened. But there's some photos of him being surrounded by the press and having to answer for, for what's happening with the privacy. Tell us a little bit more about um, what's been happening with Facebook and their API responses, etc. Yeah, so first of all, I, I saw some of the footage today. I didn't watch the whole thing, but he looked very nervous. <laughs> hey, as you would be, right? Like the kids the kids are not even 35 and he's yeah. facing up to the U.S. government. And let's be honest, the U.S. government, uh, yeah, they pretty. it's a pretty big deal that. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I guess the, the big issue is so Cambridge Analytica, the London-based data mining firm, have basically had access to 87 million plus accounts. So Facebook accounts that have had their data accessed. And they also believe that of their 2.2 billion users, most of us have actually had our public information scraped at some stage. So all this is coming out as a privacy concern. That's that's say that's saying public information though, right? So Yeah. So this could include your email address, your phone number, your name, pictures. 
Right, but your email address address is private information, not public information. So how would they scrape that? Oh, I'm not too sure, but that's that's the main concern is that they've actually had um, so these malicious actors have taken the user's email addresses and phone numbers. So that those things are currently used to help you with search, particularly in countries uh, like India, where if you've got like a really long name or and it's hard to find connections in different countries, uh, you can use their email address or their phone number to find them and befriend them. Um, but this is posed as a massive problem. So that's one of the things they've already removed from Facebook. And they've made a whole heap of API changes, mostly affecting third-party apps. Yeah, and of course, we live very much in the third-party app world. And um, I see that Facebook yeah, put a lot of new restrictions on uh, what you can do on Facebook and Instagram with third-party apps. And I guess it's like with a lot of things in life, it's a balance. There's a lot of benefit to third-party apps. And there's, uh, I mean, if you look at something like, like Google Maps, it's used in all sorts of ways and all sorts of apps. And the same with Twitter and with Facebook. But definitely the data side of things. I think the challenge with companies like Google, Facebook, and Twitter are that the product is the user and it is the user's data. So they always have this this conflict of interest because in, you know their their customers are the advertisers and the product are the users and their data and sometimes there's a conflict of interest between the two very different to something like Spotify where it's just a software as a service and they may be able to use their data to improve the user experience but they their their main source of revenue are subscriptions and in fact Tim Cook the CEO of Apple took it as an opportunity to have a nice PR swipe at uh, Mark Zuckerberg and say that um, you know we you know we, we believe that uh, it's a human right to have privacy and uh, Apple does not sell data or make use of data but if you think about it everyone uses Facebook and Twitter and Google on Apple products so that's true you know that's true. He, he also you know he's complicit in some way um, as I said to a friend yesterday when we were talking about um, sort of corporate responsibility, et cetera. And I said, we're all part of the problem and we're all part of the solution. You know, it's, it's, it's I don't think, I, th- I don't think anyone is, is generally more responsible than others, but I do think this discussion is incredibly important. And there is some talk as well of taxing these companies for use of our data. So basically they pay us for use of our data. I believe Facebook makes about $2.20 per person per year. American per person per year. There was some figure floating around. So in theory, I think that was per year. Could have been per month. So, but I think it might be per year. So in theory, people are willing to pay more than that as a subscription basis. We can lose the advertising model. You know, YouTube's got an option, a subscription option, Kate. I don't know if you subscribe to the, the YouTube Red. No, I don't, unfortunately. It's probably the best, along with the Spotify subscription, it's probably the, the greatest value subscription that you can get. And it removes all the ads, no more ads on YouTube. You can mm. listen to it on your mobile phone in minimized mode. Um, and I think you get free access to Google Play Music, which I don't actually use. I think it's something like 12 or 15 bucks a month. And I love it. Fantastic. And I would pay the similar for Facebook and I'd pay similar for Google if they would just yank, yank their ads out and offer some other premium services. But I understand for a lot of people, they'd prefer not to pay. Yeah, I definitely think most people would opt not to. Only people who have got 
an interest in business, I guess, who have got business pages and, you know, they want to watch videos and learn from other businesses. But your average user just wants to see what's happening with their friends. Yeah, they're not that. Uh, and I think Facebook would be, would, and I think even with YouTube, I mean, I'd be very curious. They don't reveal their numbers on YouTube, right? But I'd be very interested to see. I mean, even someone like you, I, on the face of it, I'm surprised that you're not paying. But even someone like you is not that motivated to pay for a, a premium subscription of YouTube. No, no, not YouTube. I mean, I, I watch the occasional video, especially TED Talks, things like that. But I'm not, I'm not sitting on it. I haven't really caught on to it. But definitely Spotify, definitely Netflix, uh, probably the two um, that I'm happy paying for. And even then, actually, I don't pay for either of them, but I would. <laughs> yeah, I've actually been using YouTube a lot more for sort of podcast purposes. But, you, know, you know, when I say podcast purposes, I mean the same reason I listen to podcasts, listening to smart, interesting people. I've been using, for whatever reason, YouTube a lot more these days mm. for to listen to talks. And I had an idea around our podcast. We used to put our podcast up until recently on YouTube, um, just the audio. We never got much traction with it. I think it dawned on me yesterday, Kate, I was listening to a talk that did a similar format to what we used to do, just put the audio without the video on there. And it really bothered me on YouTube. Even just to have, yeah, even just to have the talking heads, right? Even just to have the talking heads somehow just keeps you there for whatever reason. Maybe just YouTube is, we're just used to that with YouTube as as opposed to podcasts. I think when we get a little bit more organized and people can see our talking heads, maybe we should put it back on YouTube. Yeah, definitely. If we've got a video to support it, it's also quite easy to put together. Yeah, we'll we'll get there. We'll get there. We we threw we three quarters of the way there. I mean we. We actually do record the audio uh, and the video of this in any case, but uh, it's just the logistics. But anyway, we won't bore with our listeners with the, the back-end side of the It's a Monkey podcast and, uh, and, uh, and uh, Manage Flitter. Another exciting new story, speaking of subscription services, Spotify went listed last week in the U.S. Yes. And yes. this is they quite did a direct listing. They did a direct listing, which what that actually means is they actually never raised any new funds. So Spotify have had um, some external funding quite a lot over the years. And the shareholders include obviously the CEO and um, some of the, the, the investors and some of the team members. And the main reason that they listed was that some of these people can actually have a liquidity event, which means they can sell some of their shares but they actually never asked the market for any more money, which is quite unusual. So when Twitter listed and Google listed and Facebook listed, not only did they allow existing shareholders to sell the shares, they actually raised more money and issued more shares and, and you know, put that into the kitty as well. So Spotify said no, they, they don't need more money. They don't want to raise more money. They're just going to allow existing shareholders to sell the shares and um, the share price initially spiked a little bit it's it's come down a, a back and it's it's sort of hovering i think it listed at about 130 i think it's about 155 now um 149 i believe so it's come back down a little bit so i actually bought a little bit so the disclaimer i did buy a little bit yesterday of spotify shares a tiny bit mainly because i just love spotify and i love being a part of services that i love I own a little bit of Facebook, a little bit of Twitter, a little bit of Google, a little bit of Amazon, a little bit of Bitcoin, and I love sort of supporting services that I that I love. And um, of course, Spotify 
has not been making any money, meaning no profit, and they have a massive bill of license fees the whole time because they've obviously got to pay for the privilege of giving people access. And there's a lot of talk about whether they will ever be able to make money. I think they will somehow, even if they get acquired and uh, et cetera. But yeah, it's not, on the face of it, a lot of accountants wouldn't like looking at these numbers because uh, there's a lot of money out and the money in doesn't really cover it. And eventually this does have to cover it. Another business that's in a similar situation is Uber as well, just burning huge amounts of money. I think Uber's Kate has burnt through $10 billion. So that's $10,000 million Uber has burnt through of investor funds, right? Yeah, I can see that. Spotify's definitely got the right statistics on its side, though. Yeah, 71 million subscribers um, with active users listening for on average 25 hours a month. And they're doing like twice as well as their next competitor, which is Apple Music. So I mean, if you're gonna put your if you're gonna put your money anywhere, I think you would put it in Spotify. Yeah, totally, um, totally. And but I think they're also saving like ten to fifteen percent by not having an underwriter. Yeah. So the listing process is a very very expensive process. You've got to have investment bank bankers, and and if you're selling new shares, you've got to have an investment banker that will underwrite in case they not uh, don't sell them. And it's a very it's, it's, it's a very convoluted process and the people that generally do uh, well are investment bankers and lawyers and accountants because it's a very uh, technical process. The fact that they're not raising extra funds and uh, means they don't have to go through an investment bank. They still need an investment bank for, need an investment bank for some purposes but not the, the, the whole story. So they were able to save quite a lot of money, which the shareholders uh, would like. So, yeah, I still think it's, a, it's nice to have a, a little bit of a position in Spotify. It's such a great service. I've said this many times in the podcast before for years. I'm always surprised why Spotify doesn't build a social media network around their service, a much stronger social media network. Um, in some ways they do. I mean, it's not their own, but it's quite easy to share songs, share playlists, share any kind of creation that you've made on Twitter and Facebook and stuff straight from Spotify. So they've done the right integrations. Yeah, I, I, I get that. And you can follow people and you can follow their playlists. But you've got to remember, like one of the first really successful social media platforms was MySpace, right? And it was built around music. And music is, is one of the great unifiers. And it's, um, it's I, I think... I think I just whenever I use Spotify, I just see opportunity there of uh, of just building out a social graph there. That's that's a lot stronger and, and a lot more compelling. And I'm, I'm not I'm not entirely sure why they don't go go bigger on that side of things. Um, but yeah, anyway, they may they may have enough battles to fight. And you know, people people sometimes look at startups and tech companies from the outside and, and, and we question why they don't do certain things. And sometimes we think there's someone in there that knows better and then it's, and it's a strategic reason. It's not always a strategic reason. You know, these companies are made up of people just like you and I that sometimes get things wrong and sometimes we just don't get to things, you know. Yeah. So it just could be one of those things. So um, super smart entrepreneur, though, is a Swedish chap, Daniel Ek or Elk, I think is his name. And of course, on listing, he's on worth on paper about two, three billion dollars, which would be pretty sweet for him. <laughs> you know, interestingly, though, on that topic of making it into a social platform, 
not so much as you're getting older, but I definitely remember in high school the type of music you listened to really sort of defined Absolutely. You. Absolutely. Um, so it was about, you know, what band you listened to and it was sort of like this sort of stigma around, you know, what you listen to and what you'd admit to listening to. So I think, and even now, like I appreciate the fact that you can have that privacy on Spotify, that you could listen to whatever you want and nobody else has to know. Come on, Kate, tell like, us, you tell us your embarrassing song. Come on. Tell us, tell us, who do you uh, listen to that you have? I don't even you, have one embarrassing song. It's more like I like to go back and I like to listen to old playlists. Or right. I like how on Spotify they have like the discovery features or they have like best of the 90s or workout hits from the 90s or something like that. It's kind of cheesy. And if someone saw just the individual track I was listening to, they'd probably think that's really strange. But in the moment, I'm enjoying the entire playlist. I think, yeah, I hear you. And I think it, it would definitely need, you know, allow you control over your feed but i i'm not even talking so much about the music aspect but just using the the music aspect as as a starting point to build out an alternative to twitter and facebook and instagram you know like instagram was started with images and but it's sort of evolved into something a bit more um you know spotify to start off with music but evolve into something more to use that as the seed point to build out a general more a more generalized social media platform i don't necessarily think you'd have to share all the music and you listen to and open it all up but the fact that you've got i don't know six i don't know how many paid users they've got now i forget the number you know tens of millions of paid users that are engaging with it multiple times a day that just slowly, incrementally, you know, I mean, I don't know, people go to concerts. There's 60,000 people that will go to a Coldplay concert. Maybe there's something around that concert that can be shared or discussed or even analyzed. You know, mu- music people are very passionate. I mean, on your, on your point around um, high school, I mean, I'm obviously even older than you. And uh, in my day, uh, it was a big deal in South Africa what band names you wrote on your school case, right? I don't know if that happened. Yes. <laughs> right? It would still happen in your yeah, day, right? So, no. <laughs> so there were, you know, the alternative rock kids and there were the Depeche Mode versus the Smiths. And that, that was how I discovered bands. I know it sounds crazy. I would see, you know, older kids that had the Smiths, the Smiths. And I was like, who are these people, the Smiths? And I, I did, you know, discover it in that way. And, and yes, I think very much about what people admitted to but definitely the different groups the emos versus the alt rockers versus the the cool kids they all we all wrote different things on our on our suitcases on our the canvas school bags oh yeah definitely and the pencil cases as well and i remember thinking that too like there was a period in between you know being in high school where i had a lot of time to discover all these bands and you know, and you learn from, as you said, you learn from your peers and you sort of found your little niche and stuff. There was a period where I just sort of wasn't doing that as much, but then I wasn't discovering new stuff. So I was just repeating all these old albums I had. And then when I got Spotify, it's changed again. So I'm constantly discovering new stuff. And like, I really like that. I like that they've already done that and they've got smart, like AI that does that. Uh, that's definitely that, you know, the music discovery is, uh, the huge, huge value prop of it. I was lucky enough a few years ago to have a spend about 20 minutes with all the band members of a band called Daughter, which are quite a successful indie band. And um, in, um, my friend and myself saw them at a gig in Sydney, and not their gig, another gig. They were all here for Laneway Festival. Um, they were at the, the Wall Paint gig, 
And we went up to them. They were walking back to their hotel, and we went up to them and we started chatting with them. And uh, one of the the lead guitarists and vocalists, I asked him his thoughts on Spotify, and he said, you know, obviously it's a lot more difficult to make money these days in the music industry, and uh, they got a gig very, very hard. But it's worked to their benefit as well, where many of their fans have discovered them on Spotify. So you know, they re- they they definitely don't have a antagonistic view towards uh, these platforms but it has definitely changed the music industry but yeah the discovery the discovery on for music junkies I mean you know I mean it wasn't that long ago in backpacking around Australia and uh, I had to be forced only to choose 10 tapes or five tapes because I didn't have space in my backpack and that was it you know and it sounds so amazingly dated and and just just really like it was a million years ago but it was that limited and and now to have spotify in your pocket wow it's just i never get bored of it i never never get bored of having spotify in my pocket for for 16 or 20 bucks a month uh definitely not definitely not um anyway that's enough of uh listening to our uh life history you're listening to Data Monkey podcast, where we talk about everything related to tech, chat to some thought leaders in the industry, and uh, you can always go to itsamonkey.com to listen to previous interviews. We've chatted with Melanie Perkins from Canva, David Hanemeyer Hansen of Basecamp, John, Dr. John Demartini. So we've had some fantastic previous interviews. You can head on over there. And it's interesting, Kate, I look at the stats, and every now and then one of the previous old episodes just sort of bounces, and obviously people share it or listen to it. So uh, podcasts are great long-tail content if you're thinking of doing one, and a whole, a whole lot of fun, I think. So Kate and I get to chat with each other and, and self-indulge a little bit every week, and hopefully something interesting comes through it for you. And we're going to take a short break, and after the break, we're going to play the interview that I did with Nate Wright, who's the owner of Small Biz Triage, so stick with us for a few minutes. Hi, my name is Joe Pinto. I'm the Business Operations Manager here at Manage Flitter. Did you know that Manage Flitter can help you quickly and cheaply build an organic following on Twitter? Let me explain in six easy steps. Step one, find new prospects on Twitter with Power Mode, Manage Flitter's advanced Twitter search feature. Step two, easily filter and sort results to find the most relevant Twitter accounts for you to follow. Step three, Follow these Twitter accounts using Manage Flitter's simple interface. Step four, unfollow accounts that do not follow you back within 14 days. Step five, watch your Twitter follower numbers grow as high quality accounts follow you back. Step six, rinse and repeat to maintain consistent organic Twitter account growth. Feel free to drop by manageflitter.com to trial our product or email us at contact at manageflitter.com to schedule an obligation-free walkthrough. You're back with It's a Monkey Podcast. My name is Kevin Garber. I am the CEO and co-founder of Manage Flitter. Now, if you know a little bit about me, you'll realize that actually before Manage Flitter, my first business was a company called Melon Media. And what Melon Media started out as was a email marketing agency. I actually go so far back that when I started my business, I would sit in in sales meetings trying to pitch my business to companies in Sydney, Australia, and they would ask me, 
why do I actually need to pay you to send out emails on my behalf when I can just BCC emails and send emails? So that's, that's going back a long way. So I was very interested to, to get a pitch from someone to be on the podcast um, who's still very much in the email marketing world, which I've obviously got a soft spot for because that was my very first business, which I sold a couple of years ago. So I'm happy to uh, say that I have Nate Wright, who is the um, owner of Small Business Triage. He's coming to us live well, it's going to be edit. It's going to be edited and re-recorded by the time you listen to it. But he's live with me now um, on my Skype line, coming from you in California, right, Nate? Yes, I am, Southern California. Southern California, what? Uh, San Diego, L.A. Uh, closer to San Diego. I live in Oceanside, which uh-huh. is as far away you could get as you could get from San Diego, and like still call yourself from San Diego. It's it's a little expensive down here. <laughs> so. It's, I'm in the cheaper northern half. Look, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. All the good cities are having in the world is that the pro, the cost of you know housing is through the ceiling, and that's where remote work and distributed teams might save us all, right? Uh, that's the the theory. That's a, I, mean, I, I could talk about that for a few hours, though. Well, so. <laughs> well, tell us, Nate. You've had small business triage for a little while. Some of our quite a few of our listeners are small business owners, entrepreneurs, wannabe entrepreneurs. You help small businesses with sales, marketing, productivity strategies. Tell us a little bit about the lay of the land in small business world at the moment. We hear a lot in the press about the Googles, the Facebooks, the Amazons, the Twitters. Yeah. Um, we don't actually these days hear that much about small business. It's, it's, it's become a little bit unsexy. It's all about the unicorns. It's all about the high growth startups. But small business is still the biggest yep. employer in Australia. Um, I'm pretty sure it's probably the biggest employer in the yeah. United States as well. It is. It is. So this is kind of an interesting time for small businesses. There's this this kind of teeter-totter effect where the tech-savvy small business owners are almost insane crazy, just obsessed with finding new ways to automate, new ways of, you know, bots. Chatbots is a huge thing now. All of these ways to, to... remove workload. They're just obsessed with the technology. But what's odd is that the people that buy from small businesses, they're still these shop local, eat local, live local, sleep local types Mm -hmm. that still want that human connection. So what we're seeing is a lot of small business, and some of them are tiny businesses, like five clients, like just getting into it are going so automated, so technology-driven, even for a brick-and-mortar business, that their customers are getting alienated. So why would I hire out this service or buy this product from a small business if you're just going to give me the same chatbot platform that Nike uses or Nordstrom's uses or Walmart uses or Amazon uses? Mm-hmm. So there, And there's a balance. And on the flip side, you've got the... The folks that are a bit older or a bit less technology dependent that are pushing away all technology are missing out on a lot of opportunities where people, for example, they pull up a local map listing. Google Maps is still a thing. It's uh, Google My Business is like the fifth or sixth name they've had. I've lost I lost track. Mm-hmm. Uh, that you know, just maybe like a few hundred dollars worth of investment could get them ranked, kind of at least on the first few results especially for a, a niche business. 
So it's, it's this flip-flop between the uh, the tech-savvy, the tech overkill, mm-hmm. and the folks that are are completely uh, pushing away an anti-technology. Because, oh, we're a, just a small business. So the folks that are able to blend the two together correctly are the ones making the money right now. You know, I've been listening a bit to Jordan Peterson. He's become very much uh, of a lot of interest in the media lately. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's a Canadian academic that's been doing the rounds. And um, he's actually been talking a lot about the Pareto the Pareto distribution as opposed to the normal distribution, right? So mm-hmm. there's this general assumption that everything follows a normal distribution with most in the middle and a bit at the two ends. But he's yep. talking a lot about how in our world, so many things are actually the Pareto distribution, which is the 80-20 rule, right? Oh, yeah. So that got me thinking in terms of the businesses that, that, that you're talking about. They're sort of, they're sort of at either extreme, either just just trying to leverage the hell out of technology, or they still believe it, you know, unbelievable, still at the point of what is a website. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what is this? My cousin tells me this Facebook thing is important, or the the tweeter. I've heard tweeter a lot. <laughs> and it's particularly industries industries like like medicine, you know, it just. Mm-hmm. It just astounds me. I mean, it's there's, for example, I mean, you used my, um, you know, scheduling software that I use to um, yep. set up meetings, which is just so fantastic. I give people a link; they can see what times are free. Everyone gets emails. Yep. Everyone gets reminders. Boom, boom, boom. I mean, the fact that when I call a doctor, my my GP for a checkup, I've still got to talk to a human being. We've got to negotiate a time. If I cancel, oh, yeah. we've got to. I, I mean, come on. Come on, like it's all nice and it's it's fluffy, but that that inefficiency, and we should all be working on more strategic, dare I say, elements in society than it's so. So yeah, there, there's certain industries that just seem to be incredibly behind the, the medical industry, the legal industry, the accounting industry. My accountant, I always say to him, can't your team <laughs> the worst? <laughs> can't your team work remotely? And he says we're so paper based still. I would literally have to pay someone to just scan and scan and scan. So there are these these spiky little little points everywhere that are still yet to catch up, right? Yeah, I mean it's some of it's industry focus and some of it's just personality. I mean it all and that's I think the the crux of the whole issue is that it's something that I teach when I'm teaching copywriting and storytelling courses that everyone that starts a business or as an established business and are just in love with their own business. They're in love with their own voice. It could be me. <laughs> they're in love with, they're super passionate about this product or this whatever brand of Shinola they've got. So when they're when they're when they're talking and, and and reaching out to people, it's like, hey, you should buy my thing. Let me tell you about how awesome it is. They'll weave this long story that says my product is going to be the hero in your life. This product is the Luke Skywalker in your world. It's the new hope. That is so fundamentally wrong on a psychological level, on an evolutionary level, on a socioeconomic level. The product is not, and the service is not the hero of the story. The hero of the story is the customer. It's the client. Your app or your accounting service or your dog walking service or your tennis shoe company, that's the elixir. That's the thing that's supposed to to help you be the hero. So when I'm going to buy something like Schedule Once, a tool we just, the scheduling platform you and I both use, Mm -hmm. when I use that with people, it's like Schedule Once 
wanted me to make to make me the hero. So now I used my lightsaber now, schedule once, that's the elixir. And I, as the customer, could be the hero. I could be the hero of the story because I've got this really cool lightsaber now. And you can even take it a step further where in the corporate world, if you make someone look good in front of their team and their boss, mm-hmm. right? And oh, this, yeah. used, this used to happen in the email marketing world where I would sell to the marketing manager or the marketing assistant and she or he would then go to the powers that be and would just present this awesome tool that doesn't involve IT, that can do all this thing and they look like the hero and you've empowered them. You've empowered them to become the hero and you've catalyzed that. So, you, you know, Nate, I used to teach a, a class at uni on introduction to the internet and history of the internet and I used to do this mm-hmm this class about what makes a good website. And this was many years ago where there were still a lot of bad websites. So it would actually made it pretty oh, yeah. easily. And I would pick a, on, on a corporate company that had structured their website according to their internal structures, which was so interesting. You know, it's like our different branches, our different departments, say a bank, you know, we've got a loan department and we've got a credit risk part department and we've got yep. a, and then I would show them an example of a, a company that, that, you know, considered it from the customer's perspective. What would you like to do? Would you like a loan or would you like a new credit card? Or would, and, that, and the internal structure of the company was absolutely irrelevant to the user. And it just, and it just made that exact point. And I, think, and I think as entrepreneurs and as business owners, it's, it's, there, is, there is a certain amount of narcissism that is required. We have to have that self-belief that we can get that escape velocity but I think we need that self-awareness that at a point it becomes non-useful to us. And of course, the, the customer and the user, I mean, I just keep telling our team to get the basics right of reliability and, and, and you know, adding value to the user. And it's something that's very, very easy to forget, particularly, I think, when you have some level of success, start having some level of success. Yeah, absolutely. That aspect of being self-centered and not and not aware enough about your customer your client your 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 dream client your dream customer is that and, that and that's where the issue with technology comes in is that is that everyone's building these solutions and these methods for reaching new customers and growing their business that are completely self-centered there are certain things that we do like i will i will require somebody go to a scheduling platform to schedule time with me so they could get on the phone with me and actually have a real-time human conversation. Some people require the phone call first, then the digital interaction. But that is that is what I required so that I could actually give them that uninterrupted human time and not soil my, my reputation, which is important to me, but also not waste their time. So the technology was uh, a consequence of the situation of what of what that customer is trying to do. This is the fastest way for you to get the solution that you need. Is this little scheduling tool? You need to fill in four blanks. If you can't fill in four blanks, then we probably won't do business together. So it actually the technology in this case could be used as a as a cheap gatekeeper instead of a secretary. And it's easy sometimes you just have to come back back down to basics is what problem are you solving? What problem yep. are you solving? And every business and I like to think there's two types of problem solutions there's problems that are very visible i.e like say schedule once there's a problem that that you know mm-hmm. 
to schedule it times between two people requires a million emails and how can we shortcut that? Nice and clear-cut problem. But there's other problems that we aren't even aware that we had, right? So before Facebook existed, before YouTube existed, no one would, if you'd say, what does the world need? Oh, we need a, a social media platform where we can share videos and photos and have these crazy political debates. And let's assume that the world's better for having these platforms mm. for a moment at least. And to create a solution to a problem that no one knows actually exists. That's, that's, a, harder, that's a harder sort of problem to solve. And that's where the whole Silicon Valley model is quite interesting to, to, to you know, have heavily funded businesses trying to find a nerve to sort of touch and a problem to solve that none of us actually even realized we existed. But I think most small businesses are much more grounded in the real world where we have to, we have to oh, yeah. start making, like, like all my businesses, we've had to start making money from day one, right? That's just, we had no option. So it was always about solving a very visible problem and if and if you listen to this podcast and you still dream of selling uh, starting a small business the good place to start is what what problem do you have in your life right i was sitting at the beach yesterday we're lucky in australia we, we're full of beaches and, and we had a, uh, an unusually hot day yesterday and i went with a friend to one of my favorite beaches about an hour north of sydney and i got this special sort of sun shelter ordered from a funky beach area called byron bay and it was a bit windy and we were struggling with this this shelter not to just go crazy in the wind. And I just thought to myself, there is still not a beach shelter that basically says we can guarantee that this beach shelter is going to be fine up until Category 1 gale force. Now, I'm sure with some investment and engineering and some thought, a beach shelter can be created that is safe in windy conditions. Boom, there's a problem that needs to be solved that there's probably a business waiting to happen, right? Absolutely. And... Being obsessed about listening to your customers. That's one of the reasons that I, I hear it all the time. Uh, people asking for the shortcuts. So like, okay, what they, what's your secret with email marketing? I was like, what's your favorite call to action? Your favorite subject line? All these, like, give me the shortcut. And I always answer the same way. My, my favorite call to action is hit reply. And if I, but, but Nate, I'm sending out like 30,000 emails. And I was like, and I, so, so you may, maybe you get a 3% reply rate and you're going to have 300 emails to respond to. This is a damn good problem to have mm. because all that feedback, you're starting conversations with strangers or people that might as well be strangers and they're going to let you know, no, Nate, this is what I'm willing to spend money on to solve my problem. This is what I want you to fix for me. That conversation that comes at people is like, I just want the click and I want the reply. I want the conversation. When I emailed you, where I had my guy David emailed you. I was like, hey, Nate's awesome. You should talk to him for your podcast. That was done. All this email marketing knowledge. And did we send it to an automated form? Did we send it to a scheduler? Did we run it through a funnel? Hell no. Just just reply, yes or no. And by the way, I want I wanted to comment that that pitch email to me was was amazing. It got me excited. <laughs> it was personal. I even sent it to my co-host and one of my right-hand people. Um, Kate Frappel, and I said, this pitch email is good. We need to learn from this. So it definitely, you practice yeah. you practice what you pitch. And I mean, people ask about that. Like th that, that email took longer to write than this podcast will take. That took hours and hours and hours to write. Well, as Mark Twain said, I, I wrote you a long letter because I never had time to write you a short one, right? That's right. Um, That's right. Nate, interestingly, I wrote a blog post once about 
my hate for the fact when companies send out email marketing pieces and they and they say do not reply to this email and they reply oh, to and they no reply, reply from yeah mm-hmm. and they and they reply to email addresses do not reply at company.com and it's just oh. you know i wrote like the whole idea of email is to respond we monitor all our inboxes and um, you know yes we 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 if necessary we'll push them maybe somewhere else like i pushed you to mm-hmm. our scheduling or we push them to a ticketing system etc but um, you know, get organized so that you can handle your inbox, right? There's a lot of or tools. You could go Vayner check with it and just suck it up and pull the 16-hour day and reply to all of them, <laughs> okay. right? I mean, the guy doesn't sleep, and I'm 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 sure. I wish I invested in the company that supplies the drugs that he has to take to be stay awake for that long. But it's New York. It's New York, Nate. I don't know. They put it in the water. <laughs> they when I'm in New York, somehow I don't sleep either. And after I know, three last months, time I was there, there, I remember like, <laughs> what time is it? And I was like, it's last call was like hours ago. This is New York, man. We're we're, we're just starting. It was four in the morning. <laughs> I'm just like, <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, oh, man, adrenaline, gonna... adrenaline. It's sort of they pump adrenaline into the air there. But, so it's. Apparently Apparently the water quality is amazing for being such a old city uh-huh. that the water apparently is like some of the most drinkable water in the country, which blows my mind. I don't get it at all. Or it might just be a really good, a really good marketer, a really good PR agency. Spread the word that New York City water is totally potable, <laughs> totally, totally drinkable. So, so Nate, you, you came through an unusual path to small business marketing, etc. I was curious when I was preparing for this interview um, and going through your LinkedIn, I saw something that I don't know if I've ever actually seen before, um, that you attended the United States Air Force Academy. And I think, yeah. and I think the U.S. military is something of real intrigue, especially to the rest of the world, but even maybe in America <laughs> as well. I mean, yeah. I, you might be familiar that we've got a very big um, base in Australia in the middle of the desert that uh, mm-hmm. provides a lot of monitoring of satellites and all sorts of bits and pieces. I'm trying yep. to remember the, um, it's at the tip of my tongue, but uh, so we've got a long history with the U S but tell us about the United States air force Academy. I'll, I'll give you the cliff notes version. Uh, I didn't have any money and my parents didn't have any money to send me to college. And uh-huh. they said that it was free. They said you could be like an astronaut or a, a fighter pilot if you come here. Top yeah, Gun, right? I could Top do gun. that. And I went and jumped through a bunch of hoops. And I think it, I had to take my SATs. It's like a standardized test in the States five times before I got a score high enough just to get an application from them. Uh, jumped through all sorts. of. I had, to, uh, I had to get a nomination from a congressman. Jumped through all these hoops and finally got the acceptance letter. Showed up and... I went from being a almost straight A student. School was easy for me, and I got I spent of my eight semesters at the Air Force Academy. I spent four semesters on academic probation. I almost got kicked out four times. Somehow, I some people say, "Oh, you graduated?" No, I survived the Air Force Academy. The first year, it's basically boot camp for a year, and you're taking a bunch of college classes. And I went to an easy high school, and the academy does not do easy. Fast forward a couple years, you know, through several nervous breakdowns and and gallons of tears, and I ended up uh, <laughs> wandering the halls in the, in the academic hall there. And in that week, I had had my 
my multivariable calculus professor, uh, Captain Huber, I still remember his name, and two computer science professors pulled me into their office. It's like, Nate, I need you to meet with me after school. And I'm like, oh, man, what now? Who have I pissed off now? And he pulls me aside. And I was I was convinced that I was going to be a computer programmer, that I was going to be a computer scientist. And uh-huh. I was convinced. So <laughs> he pulls me aside, and the math teacher comes up and is like, Nate, you're not going to make it. And I was like, I'm doing great. Like I'm, I'm kicking butt at this thing. This is amazing. And he's like, you're not going to make it. You're, you're 10 days in, and you're like feeling miserably. And I'm like, well, my mom didn't raise a quitter, and I stormed off two days later. Mm-hmm. One of my programming professors pulled me aside and is like, Nate, you're not going to make it. And I was like, I got a C-plus last semester. What do you mean I can't make it? I passed. I passed. They're like, that was the easy class. And then another computer science professor pulls me up to his office the next day and he's like nate you're not gonna make it and i'm like shit so i wandered the halls up and down the halls literally knocking on doors and i was like so what do you guys do like what's this major look like and i found a professor bill newmiller and he was in the english department and i remember he had a technical background i was like maybe i could talk geek with him and he could either like talk sense to these computer science guys or tell me what to do i'm freaking out so I sat down and I was like, Nate, I think we could help you. I think we could convert your computer science credits into foreign language credits because I had to get a minor in a foreign language to get the English degree. And I said, it's not too late. And I used to hate English, hated it. Fast forward two years, I ended up graduating barely, like 2.02 GPA with a, uh, a bachelor's of science in English. And true story, I took thermodynamics and the literature of love back to back. And they're on opposite ends of the campus. So I'd literally have to run in uniform with my big old backpack with full of books to go from thermodynamics, all the calculus, and I barely passed that class, to the literature of love taught by some guy who fell in love like I think every four months. And then they would break up and <laughs> it was a rinse and repeat cycle for him. And I wrote in the Air Force and uh, I was convinced – I was still convinced up until I think 2008, I was convinced that I was a technologist. I was a technical person. I'm a computer guy, and I was just an idiot. <laughs> I, I always say I'm a frustrated developer. I'm not a developer either, but I, I'm in awe of developers. They're alchemists. They turn – you know, they turn nothing into magic, and it's 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 real alchemy. So I, I understand that aspirational attitude towards a, a technical life. But I really I really like that name of the degree, Nate, Bachelor of mm-hmm. Science in yep. English. And you've put an explanation there, translating geekery for the rest of yeah. us. And it's uh, I think it's an inspiration to others that you've you've turned. I mean, you've turned your your superpower, which is communication and understanding technology. Um, into a business that's as a as a go-between so it's you know there's always a pathway through yeah i mean there's always a pathway through and it's technology come comes and goes but human nature doesn't i mean i we were the guys and i my business partners were so pumped up it was like oh my god nate got a interview with manage flitter and one of our business partners like who's that i'm like what the f dude not cool (laughs) but well, well, we we should just interject here that because it it, it was in the it was in the pre-interview prep, <laughs> but Nate actually um, 
has been a managed Flutter oh, yeah. user for many years. So, which just sort of happened and, yeah. and uh, sort of roundabout we that, that it's done full circle. years ago. I think you had just launched like that year. We were probably one of your first 100 customers. If you dig back far mm-hmm. enough, you'll find us. Uh, yeah, and, and, and Twitter is just an interesting little platform. I'm, I, I'm starting to use it again because of just the nature of the job, but that's the smart way to do it. Like, I want to reach these people. Their weapon of choice is Twitter. Therefore, I need to use a Twitter tool to reach them. Instead of, I should be on Twitter because smart business people are on Twitter. Like, that logic is all backwards. It needs to be, and it is it is the best weapon. People say, do you use Hootsuite? It's like, <laughs> buffer, manage flare, done. Uh, that, that hasn't changed for you. Well, we we. So. We appreciate that, yeah. and uh, we've got great plans for Managed Flutter, and we've got a new tool, Managed Social, which I'd love to add you to our alpha testers list. And um, Nate, uh, unfortunately, times, time always goes so fast when, when we're talking, but uh, let's stay in touch. Uh, maybe we can have you back on at some stage. I think there's a lot of, a lot of areas we can uh, drill down into. Where, where was this academy, by the way? Where in the U.S. The was it? The academy's in Colorado Springs, right next to NORAD. There's been a bunch of movies, like War Games. Uh-huh. Pike's Peak is there. It's up uh, 7,258 uh-huh. feet above sea level. So the air is very thin. So when people first get there, they are huffing and puffing like you know, kids in the best shape of their lives. Like, like it sounds like they're pack a day smokers, like going up a flight of stairs. It was, it was hard. Did you ever get to fly in one of those fancy jets? Uh, I've flown like... in a lot of fancy airplanes, but I, I was handed a uh-huh. pilot slot at the Air Force Academy and I turned it down. Uh, it was not being married to the U.S. government for that many years didn't seem appealing to me. I had co- a commitment right. issues. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that that would definitely be a complicated relationship for a lot of people, and it's uh, you know I'm a I'm a fan in many ways of the U.S., but it's it's a complicated place. Yeah, it's it's. it's place. I love all those people to death, but it's anyone that knows me personally is like, man, it's a good thing they'd stop flying a plane. <laughs> I actually went through a phase in high school of wanting to be a a, a pilot, but. My eyes are just, I'm so colorblind that I just, I don't think I would pass, you know, anything. No, just, no, your, your I, t-shirt I would say otherwise, Kevin. Your t-shirt would say otherwise. There's a lot of colors. <laughs> the t-shirt, the t-shirt that I'm cut. Well, I think maybe one of the reasons why I'm attracted to bold colors is because they are easy to differentiate. My poor, my poor sort of bookkeeper slash CFO, Jimmy, He's been working with us and working with me for many years. And uh, in the early days, I needed to tell him on the graphs that you do, please don't use red and green on these little lines. So he puts, <laughs> only he puts, two primary colors. He, like you could use any color but red or green. <laughs> <laughs> well, he puts now he puts he puts little asterisks on the one line and a cross on the other line because it's just it's so difficult for me. It's really it's really I'm hard. Not, I'm so not gonna be, yeah, I'm not gonna be a, selling you a, a fancy dashboard cloud based app, am I? So, no, I yeah. think I think yeah, my my team have learned, but apparently Mark Zuckerberg's colored blind as well, and that's why the Facebook colors are what they are. So I think it's I think three or four percent of men or something like that. So, but uh, in any case, I don't think I was destined to be a, a, a pilot, commercial or otherwise, due to my I believe I believe you have to be in pretty pretty perfect physical shape. Yeah, you do. It's 
they make you they make you jump through a bunch of hoops and then you get there and like regardless of how smart you think you were they make you feel dumb for a long while and then allow you to feel right. smart for a bit longer and then they send you to pilot training and make you feel <laughs> dumb again uh i would be remiss not to drop my shameless plug all this t- all please this talk do, about digital do. and human balance please uh do. we're we're digging in boot camp style where we We've done them for a lot of our clients over the years where we just – we like to say that we make their like ears and eyeballs bleed, that they're so hard. But we're running these boot camps now on email marketing, digging mostly in not to the technology but into the writing, into the psychology and the storytelling and how to get people to open and click and reply and give a shit. So Inbox Attack is the latest project. It's brand new. Mm-hmm. It was one of those – Things I should have done years ago, but I was too scared to do it because it's a bit, yeah, it's scary uh, and bold and things like that. But yeah, Inbox Attack, inboxattack.com. It's uh, okay. it's just a way to put in reps writing. So all the stuff we're talking about of uh, not being self-centered with it, getting people to listen, getting people to reply, how to start conversations with strangers at a tactical and psychological level. We just get in and just like fight club if it's your first time at right club you gotta write everybody writes so everyone's getting their hands dirty everyone's bending their brain and it's something that we found we've had thousands of clients over the years and small business owners mostly and nothing replaces just getting in and getting your hands dirty and sending emails sending tweets pushing out campaigns and seeing what happens so and, and e- email is still a thing. It's going to be a thing for a long time. And I think a lot of people aren't really making that extra special effort. So it's an absolute easy way to cut through. As Nate's pitch email from, your, uh, from one of your team just cut through because I was like, wow, they've made an effort. They've spoken to me. They've got me a bit excited. I want to chat to them. So we'll definitely put links to everything. Um, they, people can find you on LinkedIn and Twitter, I assume. I mean, you're on LinkedIn as Nate Wright, uh, but we'll put all the links on the show notes. I, I, I'm going to have to scramble after this <laughs> podcast. and actually, That's like, okay. We'll put, it, we'll, put it, <laughs> we'll put everything up on your show notes. Yeah, I know that the easiest way to, yeah, the easiest way to find me is inbox attack because apparently nobody knows how to spell or pronounce triage. I think you'd be the first that actually pronounce triage correctly. So inboxattack.com is going to be, I think, easier for most folks. So. I think because I'm always saying to my team, my day-to-day activity is triaging. Yep. So I always feel like I'm, I'm, I'm in a, a you know, emergency room of sorts and I go, right, what needs the most attention is the most time sensitive, right? We do that. And, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of CEOs uh, and small business owners, that's, that's the way. So it's, a, it's yeah. a word that really captures our day today. But Nate, thank you so much for joining us. It's been great. It's the first time I've... The Aussies are so much smarter than the Americans. <laughs> it's the first time I've spoken to someone from the Top Gun Academy. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, don't say that out loud. Top Gun is actually Navy. I was right, in the Air yes, Force. Yes, of course. So we create astronauts and fighter pilots. The Navy, it's the they're the Tom Cruise people, and it's it's a long, never to end battle between the between the two forces. Uh, they uh, uh, they don't get along. Yeah, absolutely. Well, healthy competition is good, I guess. And uh, but Nate, thank you so much. We'll I put everything you. up on the show notes, and appreciate right. appreciate the time. All right. Thanks, Kevin. Cheers. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by Check Dog.
Use CheckDog to easily review and monitor your website for spelling errors, broken links, and broken images, all with the push of one button. CheckDog can also automatically monitor your website and notify you of newly introduced spelling errors. Go to CheckDog.com forward slash podcast to receive 50% off your first month subscription. CheckDog.com, helping the world's leading websites keep their content error-free. So, yeah, Kate, military, military college, um, you know, interesting, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. I know when I was in San Diego for the social media marketing world, there are so many people, I think they must have like a major base there, but so many people there that worked uh, for the Navy, or for the Air Force, just for the US Army, basically. And I actually got chatting to one and it was super interesting. Like, you know, they have these sort of stints of deployment and I got lots of insight into sort of the benefits that they get if they stick around long term. And just so it's like a lifestyle choice. I mean, I think it does take a toll on some of their personal life, but for I think it's fifteen years if they stick at it, they they actually get quite a lot out of it. They do, and and I actually think so. They should. I think um, yeah. I've, I've known one or two people work in the Australian military as well, and um, you know, even some that have been deployed to Iraq. And it is it's incredibly disruptive on their life, and it's the risks are real, even if. Even if you're not a combat soldier, you're still defined as a non-civilian, which means you're definitely a much bigger target. You know, I think the fact that there's that they both professional armies, i.e., they're not conscription, uh, makes it a lot yeah. different. You know, I grew up in a world of conscription, which which was a lot more complicated, and um, there's the issues of conscientious objectors. And um, I tell the story. And you might, may have heard it half a dozen times in the office, but I don't know if I've shared it on the podcast before when I got my conscription papers in South Africa when I was 16. You get your call-up papers. I mean, they had since ended conscription when I was about 20. But when I was 16, I got my papers as all males did. And uh, you would have to write in every year and say you're at school or you're at university and you'll get exempted. But my mother took it on up upon itself to, to call the officer and to proudly and confidently state that her son is pretty badly colorblind and that can he just get an immediate lifetime you know, me- uh, medical exemption. And my mother called, very well-meaning, totally confident, thinking like, well, you know, he can't be colorblind. He'd, he'd shoot the wrong guy. Like that's a real risk on the battlefield. And uh, the, the commissioning officer there was uh, in his thick Afrikaans accent said to my mother, she politely said, no, ma'am. He's actually much more valuable to us because colorblind people uh, can see through camouflage, right? So, <laughs> so my mother not only didn't get me out of military service, she flagged me as being extra useful to the military because I can see through <laughs> camouflage. So my mother <clears throat> was not happy. She probably with, felt terrible. She felt <laughs> terrible. But who would know? You know, it's a, it's a, and and I did always wonder because camouflage. When I see camouflage. It, Things don't blend in for me, so um, it's. I think I think five percent of men are colorblind. I think Mark Zuckerberg's colorblind, you know, red, green, etc. So uh, that's a funny military story. Thankfully, they ended conscription by the time I was about twenty, so I never had to go. Which, yeah, I think I think it's not the military is not for everyone. But in these professional armies, America and Australia, there are a lot of free education and healthcare and discipline and purpose and and. 
it's it's thankfully we're all different in the world and we and we aspire to different things yeah definitely definitely i mean i don't think it is for everyone though uh, I think Nate even said too he, he got sick of it and that's sort of how he started the small beach triage. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's uh, definitely uh, wouldn't wouldn't be for everyone. And, uh, yeah, interesting, he's been involved in the email marketing world just as we had our start there as well. Um, and I think even when you started with us, the email marketing side was still going, right? Yes, definitely. So I was, a, I was an intern for Mellon Media, the, intern, the email marketing platform. I think I was with Mellon for two years and then I've been with Managed Flutter ever since. Yeah, so um, that's where, where I cut my teeth, so to speak. But anyway, that's, um, that's episode 117, done and dusted. Remember, you can follow Kate Frappel on Twitter and Instagram. Kate's a great photographer and so you might want to follow her on Instagram and Twitter. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter as well, at ke underscore ga. I've actually been so busy, Kate, that my social my Twitter feed and my Instagram feed have been really, really quiet. I know I'm really, really busy when I don't even get a chance to, to spend a bit of time on Twitter and retweet a few things and comment about a few things and update my pinned posts, etc. Yeah. Now, I noticed over probably over Christmas, you were posting a lot on Instagram, but you've slowed down now. Yeah, I think, you know, Sydney's a very photogenic city and I like challenging myself to take interesting photos. And I've also, I also like experimenting with the whole stories, you know, so I, part of my job is I need to try to stay up to date with social media platforms, which is not actually that easy because they, they uh, iterate incredibly fast, right? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, I, th- I quite like Instagram stories though. I really like how they've added the highlights so you can actually save your favorite ones to your profile now. Okay, cool. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't played yeah. with that, but um, yeah, I saw, I don't know, I'm, I'm sort of old school, I, you know, I, I used Twitter when it was just text, I still sort of half wish we could just go back to a text only Twitter, you know, and, and I remember Instagram chronological feed and when things were, you know, I'm nostalgic, you know, this is what happens, I think it happens with every generation, you 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 sort of get stuck a little bit where you started using things and and it's a little bit of a, a challenge to get used to the new, you know? Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. And things things move really fast. That's why that's why technology tends to be dominated by younger people. But of course younger people always get get older. So it's true. It's true. I just have more of a I guess an affinity and an interest for visual than text. I like, I love reading and stuff, but it's sort of, I think a lot of people would be the same, actually. It's a lot harder to put moments or thoughts into words than it is just to take a picture of something and put like a funny caption or, you know, I love how you've got the stickers now and, uh, you know, and you can add GIFs and stuff. So you could put, you could put a joke in there, you could change the context of the picture, but to put that into words is actually harder. It is. It is, right, which is I was having this chat with a friend last night and she said to me, I've never used Twitter. Why do you use Twitter? I'm like, because there's so many smart people on Twitter and smart people say smart things and they share smart things. And then she threw back at me, oh, so it's an elitist platform. And I was like, no, not really. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, anyway, so follow us on Twitter, Instagram, whatever you want. Um, We also do a once a week Twitter chat every week. Wednesday Australian time, Tuesday evening 
American time. Google it, you'll find it. It's called hashtag social ROI. We have some great chats there. We've also got an ebook that we've launched that summarizes all the great Twitter chats of the last six months. That's got a ton of great information. If you work in social or you work in marketing, great thing to browse through, send through your colleagues. It covers all sorts of online marketing topics. It's free, by the way. So, uh, yeah, just our little way of giving back. And we will catch you next week. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. See ya.